Harness the energy you need to get you through the hectic holiday season with NT Factor's holiday sale. Get 20% off all orders of $150 or more now through December 31st. Just use the code SAVE20 at NTFactor.com. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to repair damaged cells and improve your body's natural energy production. Clinical trials have shown that NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half. It also reduces some of the side effects of aging. NT Factor is all natural available in a variety of formulations tailored to your specific needs. I've been using NT Factor for years and I prescribe it for my patients. So take advantage of NT Factor's holiday sale and stock up for the new year. Get 20% off all orders of $150 or more through December 31st. Call 800-982-9158, 800-982-9158, or use code SAVE20 at ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Our guest is the author of a great new book, The Case for Keto, Rethinking Weight Control and the Science and Practice of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating. He's Gary Taubes, best-selling author of numerous books along these lines, including Why We Get Fat. Uh, Gary, uh, what made you embrace, you know, not just low-carb, because I think a lot of people are talking low-carb, 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 that's kind of a mantra, but keto, which is a little more extreme version of carb restriction, right? Well, and I'm going to be uh, completely honest here. I'm always trying to be completely honest. But um, originally, this book was called um, How to Think About How to Eat. Mm-hmm. And I saw it as a weight control manifesto. Again, as you know, discussed in the book, we've been sort of living with this thin person's uh, view of why we get fat and the thin person's dietary advice, which is eat less, exercise more, do what I do, in effect, and you too will be thin. Um, and so for those of us who fatten easily or have difficulty controlling our blood sugar, the argument is we, we can't do what thin people do. Mm-hmm. And when we try to do what thin people do, we're either hungry or we get fatter or we get diabetic or all of the above. So we have to eat differently. And the problem in modern diets is the carbohydrate content. Um, and it's unfortunate. Uh, it's not particularly fair, but it is what it is. So for those of us who you know, have weight problems, um, we have to restrict carbs. And I talk in the book about how uh, the conventional wisdom on, on obesity is that diets that work are diets that restrict calories. And the physiological sort of based alternative wisdom is diets that work are diets that uh, minimize insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you minimize insulin, your fat cells, the phrase I use, which comes from uh, Rosalind Yallow and Solomon Burson, we talked about in the first part, uh, they said the for fat to be mobilized from the fat cells, the cells have to see the negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. So f- our fat cells are so sensitive to insulin that the slightest bit of insulin in the circulation over some minimal amount, and they will hold on to fat. So, so is that well, practically long- speaking, you know, when somebody's on a very low carb diet, and you know maybe they have a birthday party or you know they have a slice of pizza, and all of a sudden they say. Oh my goodness, I'm ravenous now. Well, it's it just a little bit, you know, it just tips them off balance uh, towards it's, craving carbs again. 
It's quite possible. I, I think, uh, again, it's we don't have the science to say anything about that definitive. I think it's a combination of, yeah, what's happening to the fat cells and what's happening in the liver. And then the body suddenly responding to this sort of the fat cells <laughs> trying to suck up fat again and mm -hmm. hold on to all their fat. Um, the, um, but it's clearly a switch. It's as though a switch has been thrown. And the, the lower, I was going to say this about George Cahill. Cahill talks about this in a uh, banting address of the American Diabetes Association in 1971. So the banting lecture is the most prestigious mm -hmm. lecture at the ADA's annual meeting. And he's talking about insulin metabolism. And he says his insulin goes up. You store fat, and as insulin goes down, you, you mobilize it. There's a, a point at which this switch is thrown, and the more time you spend with the switch thrown, the leaner you'll be. Mm. Then later, he talks about excess food consumption, and, and as he got older, he thought it was all about sedentary behavior. But when he was paying attention to physiology, mm. we have to be below this level. And the, the heavier we are, you can bet the more the lower that level is for us, and the more time we spend above it. So if you think of a you know, course of 24 hours, uh, you, you're taking in more food than you expend during the day, and then you're at night you're, you're burning it off, and you want to balance this out. So over the ideally over the course of 24 hours, it works out equal. And you know, the more time you spend with your fat cells able to mobilize the fat they've stored, the more time you spend with your insulin low, the leaner you'll be. Hmm. And so the ketogenic diet is a diet that minimizes insulin secretion. Uh, the problem seems not, to be hunger. You, you know, hunger is, is the thing that subverts virtually all dietary programs. And is it true that on a properly implemented ketogenic diet, you, you're hunger tends to diminish, right? Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's certainly a very common observation, and it's, it's since the very first time that um, uh, researchers published uh, sort of their clinical experience with very low-carb diets, which was the 1930s, um, they're observing that, that people just aren't hungry. But not only are people not hungry, they can consume more calories and still lose weight. So the idea is the conventional thinking is, is if we can put you in a negative energy balance so you eat less, and dietitians will tell you 500 calories a day, you know, they'll less and that'll come to a pound of fat a week, which is so many things wrong. It's like with a thermodynamic equation, you know, these calories in, yeah. calories out kind of thing. Exactly. So the idea is we get you to eat less, you somehow keep your expenditure the same as though how much calories you're expending is unrelated to how much you're eating, which is physiologically nonsensical, and they know that, they just don't apply it when they say this. Um, and then, so by somehow by getting you to reduce your intake while keeping your expenditure high, maybe with exercise, the excess calories will be pulled out of your fat cells and they'll be burned and they won't want to go back in somehow. And the alternative thinking, the sort of physiological basis of, of low-carb diets and ketogenic diets is that the fat tissue is very well regulated by primarily insulin. 
And when insulin is low, you'll be able to mobilize the fat from your fat tissue. And low insulin also signals this negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. also tells your lean tissue to burn fat for fuel. Your mitochondria in your cells will switch over from burning glucose to burning fat. And that signal is also insulin deficiency. So you won't be hungry because your body will now be burning all this fat you stored. So instead of thinking of it as, if we can just get you to eat 500 calories a day less, we'll yank 500 calories out of your fat tissue, and they, they you know, it'll stay out. Uh, what you think is you re-regulate your sort of hormonal status, so your fat tissue is releasing the fat, and your body is burning it, and if you're losing uh, a pound a week, you're burning 500 calories of fat a day that you wouldn't normally burn. So you're not hungry. It's like eating half a stick of butter extra every mm -hmm. day in between meals all day long. And so the hunger goes away. You turn the into a, a lean, mean, fat-burning machine of your own. Exactly. I hate it. And people use phrases like yeah. that in the diet books. And the yeah. problem is they're appropriate. Yeah. It, it, I mean, yeah, there is some physiological basis for it. But, you know, the big pushback on this is that, okay, fine. You know, short-term studies say, okay, in a year or two, these studies, they, you know, they can't go on for decades. You know, they do show that people uh, lower their their uh, their their, their uh, glycohemoglobin, their hemoglobin A1C, they, they lose weight, uh, their triglycerides come down, all these things seem to be better. But you're going to die because you're eating all that bad animal fat and all that animal protein and cholesterol and it's going to kill you in the in the long term so you you actually push back against that contention of the book what do you say okay so when i first got into this line of research remember i'm, I'm an investigative science journalist i'm fascinated with controversial science in the late 90s uh i do a Piece, a piece for the journal Science, for which I interviewed on dietary fat and heart disease in the evidence space. And I, I spent a year on one magazine article. I interviewed 145 researchers and then administrators for one magazine article. Um, and I won national uh, magazine writing awards for this, um, science writing awards. And what I learned doing this research was that the evidence base for the idea that dietary fat causes heart disease is just not there. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting hypothesis that researchers came up in the 1960s, 1950s, and they did clinical trial after clinical trial, and they were never actually able to demonstrate in these clinical trials that people lived longer if they ate less fat. Occasionally, these trials would show that people had less heart disease, but occasionally they would show that people had more heart disease. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens, and happens in all sort of dysfunctional sciences, is the uh, researchers fell in love with the hypotheses. Uh, government administrators embraced the hypothesis before it had been passed at rigorous testing, and by the time they embraced it, they could never get off of it. Yeah, it became so policy. It became, and also it became co-opted by industry, and they can offer us all kinds of low-fat products and plant-based right. products and, you know, right. uh, and impossible burgers and things like that. And simultaneously, statin drugs came in that, that you know, the, the argument is because they can seem to prevent heart disease in some uh, high-risk populations, and even that's argued by some of my allies out there. 
Um, you've got these billion-dollar drugs that are that, that kind of tens of billions of dollars per year in business that work to lower uh, LDL cholesterol. Therefore, any diet that lowers any LDL cholesterol will is good, and any diet that raises LDL cholesterol is bad. Uh, again, incredibly simplistic thinking. Yeah, but it is. Not just mechanistic, the idea that all of the effective diet can come down to, you know, one mm-hmm. one element, yeah. one Reduc- molecule. reductive thinking. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. So simultaneously, as I learned doing my original research in the 1960s, there had been a competing hypothesis. It was a British hypothesis. So in the U.S., uh, you know, what the, the question that the researchers are trying to answer is why do we see so much heart disease in the United States? And then you had these British researchers who were part of the British Empire. And so what they wanted to ask is, why is it throughout the widespread British Empire, we see epidemics of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, whenever populations shift from whatever their traditional diet is, Mm -hmm. to a Western diet. And that shift, because some of those traditional diets were high fat, high saturated Mm -hmm. fat diets, like the the Maasai, you know, herd the cattle. Kenya and Africa. Drink animal um, blood and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so because you had all these different diets, when you add the Western diet, you see obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dementia, all of these chronic diseases that are common in the West and are uncommon in these traditional populations eating their traditional diet. So they're asking a different question. And the Western diet, the primary change in foods with the addition of a Western diet was the addition of sugar and refined grains, sugar and white flour for all intents and purposes. Mm. So they came up with this hypothesis that it was a carb content of the diet, and they fought it out in the 1970s, and because most of the funding was in the U.S., and the U.S. dominated, the the U.S. media was dominant at the time, and the U.S. journals were dominant at the time. The American hypothesis won out. That was a dietary fat causes heart mm-hmm. disease. But it could never explain the observations. And one of the observations it could never explain was what happens when you remove carbs from the diet and replace it with fatty foods, and particularly fatty animal foods. Mm-hmm. And these clinical trials started being done in the late 90s with the awareness that we had an obesity epidemic. And the answer is people get thin, get healthier. So you have this hangover from the dogma of the low-fat movement, that we should all eat low-fat diets, that saturated fat is deadly, and animal products are deadly because of their saturated fat content. And then you've got the actual scientific experiments and the clinical experience of thousands of physicians saying, put people on a high fat, high animal fat, you know, red meat rich diet, remove the carbohydrates and they get healthier. And that's a, you know, unambiguous observation that any, you know, you can do it for yourself as a patient. You try the diet and see what happens, but a doctor can see it happen in their patients. So that's the kind of shift I'm, I'm also writing about in this book. I interviewed, like I said, 120 odd physicians who, you know, a phrase you often hear is they can't unsee what they've seen. They know what they're told to prescribe by the dietitians and the American Heart Association, which is the low fat, mostly plant diet. 
It's the narrative. It's the narrative that they need to conform to. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, So when you undertake a a keto diet, uh, sometimes uh, some stumbling blocks, Uh, people experience uh, distress. They might uh, have withdrawal symptoms. Sometimes this is referred to the keto flu. Can you talk about that? Yeah, a common phenomenon. Again, we don't really know how common this is. is uh, people feel enervated, a little nauseous. And again, what you're doing is you're you're shifting your body's fuel supply. So there's nothing subtle about what you're doing to your body. Your body is on this standard American diet or even a healthy American diet, the kind of planetary diet that's being advocated by uh, this, you know, the Lancet Journal now in the UK. Your, your body is burning carbohydrates primarily for fuel. And... What you want to do is, so the problem is your body's burning carbs. It's still not burning them efficiently enough because if you're pre-diabetic or diabetic or you have what's called insulin uh, metabolic syndrome, your blood sugar is still, you know, elevated for too much of the day. And you want to shift it over to burning fat. And you do this, again, by basically lowering insulin as low as it can go. So during that transition, a lot of things are happening. Um, one thing is you tend to be uh, losing a lot of weight and water weight uh, because you store carbohydrates as glycogen locked up with um, water molecules. So your body dumps that water. Your blood pressure will actually go down when you go on these diets. Um you know, reset your blood pressure is another way to think of it. And so people often feel lousy for a few days. It's not very common. Um, Mm -hmm. The assumption is that it's caused by electrolyte deficiencies. And so uh, the physicians with a lot of experience with these diets advocate uh, actually, you know, salt replenishment, drinking Mm -hmm. broth, uh, you know, taking electrolyte supplements. And that tends to... Uh, take care of it for those people who who feel bad doing it. But the again, the argument is it's worth getting through one way or the other because once your body, you want your body to run on the fat you've stored. If you're overweight or obese, the problem is right. You're not using that fat for fuel. So rather than just trying to increase your exercise, hoping that somehow you magically burn it, mm-hmm. what they're saying is, you know, you're fixing the regulation of your fat stored fat metabolism. So. Apropos of this, there's such an emphasis on exercise, exercise, you know, I think that uh, even I think, uh, you know, the the beverage industry, the sugar-sweetened beverage industry says, you know, drink uh, Coca-Cola in moderation, but make sure you exercise a lot so you burn off those calories. You tend to downplay the importance of exercise and weight regulation, right? Well, and this is, it's always been known. And again, this is what I did with my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, was five years of research. And at the time, more research than anyone had ever done on these subjects. The exercise literature was clear. You cannot lose significant weight by exercising. The way I describe it, again, it's kind of what you see is all there is idea. You've got all these lean marathoners out there who think, well, if these obese people would just run marathons, they'd be <laughs> lean too. Right. Um, you know, it's like a, a world full of greyhounds thinking if I can just get the basset hounds out on the track, right? <laughs> Those damn basset hounds will right. slim down. But what you get is you get exhausted, emaciated basset hounds. <laughs> yes. You don't get greyhounds. You can't turn a basset hound into a greyhound by putting them on the track. And you see this where, I mean, I'll never forget this. We were talking about 
uh, living in L.A., I used to visit my father-in-law lived in uh, Santa Monica Canyon, and our oldest son was at the time was you know a year and a half. So we'd wake up and I'd walk him down to the beach at seven in the morning in the stroller, and there was camps going on in the beach in Santa Monica, and they had these kids running around the track uh, that they had put out in sand, <laughs> and uh, they, so you'd see in the front. Were, were the kids who I thought of as like the rabbits. You know, they were small, they were light, they flew over the sand effortlessly, and then they got increasingly heavier as they went back. And at the end were the kids who suffered from obesity, mm. who was such an enormous burden yeah. to begin with. And now you torture them, right? Yeah. So you just assume if we could get them to run too, they'll become like the rabbits, but mm. it doesn't work like that because their bodies want to be... Yeah, heavy, rich and so, so diet. I mean, uh, exercise has its benefits, but the primacy is with your food intake. So, one of the things that happens uh, pretty often when patients undertake a keto diet is uh, they come back. Uh, you know, they're all excited. Uh, they get on the scale of the doctor's office and tell the doctor they're feeling great and it's really working for them. And then the doctor says, "Yeah, but I got bad news for you. Your LDL cholesterol went up. So, I want you to start." putting some carbs back into your diet. Yeah. Uh, this is the trickiest subject. This is uh, the sort of cosmic joke about all this. So we know now from clinical trials that virtually every heart disease risk factor is a company in San Francisco, a startup called Verta Health that has been running these clinical trials where they uh, put the type 2 patients with type 2 diabetes uh, into nutritional ketosis and they use telemedicine and uh, smartphone devices and all to help them uh, sustain the diet. And they find that over two years their overall heart disease risk plummets, as does their weight, even though they're not actually on the diets as weight loss diets. Um, so they measure 26 different heart disease risk factors and 22 of them improve, mm -hmm. and three of them remain the same, and one of them might get worse, and that's LDL cholesterol. The one risk factor for heart disease that the medical community has obsessively focused on for the past 50 years. So HDL gets better, triglycerides get better, as you put it, you know, hemoglobin A1C gets better, um, inflammatory markers get better, even the number of LDL particles and the size and density of the LDL gets the better. The quality of the LDL is improved. The quality of the LDL. Yeah. And there's a, a, a hypothesis that's becoming accepted that it's not about the LDL cholesterol, and this has been another hypothesis, been there for 50 years, but medicine moves slowly. It's not about the number of the LDL cholesterol, it's about the number of LDL particles. And physicians are trained to be basically LDL watchers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's gotten a lot better. Uh, 20 years ago, what you just described was the norm. Now I think most physicians are going to confronted with a patient who's lost 30 or 40 pounds and has an elevation of LDL. I think they're going to say, look, let's watch this. Mm -hmm. Keep doing what you're doing. Yep. Maybe let's put you on some, uh, you know, relatively benign statin like, uh, and uh, keep watching it. But that's one of the, one of the reasons I wrote this book 
it's not just to get the patients, you know, how the individual has to think about how to eat when they're overweight and obese or, or, or they're, you know, on the spectrum from, from metabolic syndrome to diabetes, but how physicians should think about it too, because I think this is becoming so mainstream that I want physicians, first of all, I want them to understand what their colleagues out there are seeing. So once their colleagues stop blaming their patients for not listening to their diet advice um, and realize the diet advice might be wrong, you know, now you start to see, you actually start to make people healthier, which is why I assume these doctors went into medicine to begin with. Well, yeah, I, I and, really wish that uh, this book were assigned reading in uh, medical school uh, or in residency programs because it's written at a level that I think uh, doctors can really appreciate the the rigor and the science uh, that you've put into it. Uh, one other thing, uh, and there's there's lots more information in the book, and I suggest that you you know read it from cover to cover to glean all the, uh, the pearls of wisdom. Um, sometimes people on a keto diet their weight plateaus. You know, they just and they and they swear, you know, I'm not eating any carbs. There are no loopholes here. I'm eating, you know, meat and salad, and uh, you know, no no uh, grains, no legumes, no starchy vegetables. But uh, the insight that you provide in in your book uh, is that sometimes it's about too much protein or perhaps too much fat. There's a point at which sometimes the body equilibrates, and the calories from other sources matter. Exactly. And this is um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this book and I wanted to talk to these physicians. So as I said, I estimate there's a few tens of thousands of physicians who have converted to this way of thinking. Um, so there's a lot of clinical experience out there. And in interviewing 120 of them, I could ask them all, what are the challenges to you as a physician and what are the challenges to your patients? <clears throat> And the obvious one is, does this always work? That's one question. And how do we define work? So, and you know, my earlier books, my supposition was the leanest people can be comfortably. That so, when you think about the effect of diet on on, on weight, so every hormone is affecting weight one way or the other, and people can have a predisposition to be fatter than they prefer for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. But the dietary input is going to run through insulin and carbohydrates. But there are also other issues. So you store the fat you eat. And it's interesting. That's been known since the 1960s. But as soon as the researchers thought, well, you store the fat you eat, therefore, if we get you to eat less fat, mm -hmm. you'll be thinner, right? That mm -hmm. helped fuel the low-fat movement. Um, the problem is you store the fat you eat, but it's the carbohydrates to insulin that regulate that storage. Mm -hmm. That kindle the fat um, metabolism, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So um, the one possibility, and I heard, um, so, you know, there are physicians who think one of the problems with people on ketogenic diets, they just consume too much fat. Um, you know, classic example is Bulletproof Coffee. I love Bulletproof Coffee, mm -hmm. and a lot of people, it becomes their staple, you know, right. what they drink in the morning, and I'm all for it, but I'm not sure we evolved to consume hot liquid fat with caffeine, <laughs> right. so now you're, yeah. you're, and when, when you're putting cream in your coffee, or heavy cream in your coffee, there's, there's no carbs in the heavy cream, but now you're, 
consuming fat all day long. Yeah, so it's a fat delivery system par excellence. It's a, right. yeah. yeah. So one thing to try would be to reduce the fat content, right. and particularly the, you know the, what you're drinking, which it always seems to be something you're doing between meals. Um, and another thing other people do is they also the protein is the protein is there's something called gluconeogenesis. You can also you actually manufacture uh, glucose from uh, protein. You know, so some people yeah, go, so they go this, protein, 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 and they get obsessed with protein, and that could be a problem too. But the people who advocate this, you know, for instance, um, one of the, the physicians I spoke to was Ted Naiman in, in Seattle, mm-hmm. and Ted's been prescribing these diets for 20 years, and Ted has convinced these diets should be high-protein diets, mm-hmm. whereas virtually everyone else thinks they should be high-fat. Mm-hmm. And I was, again, I like and respect Ted. Um, he thinks the problem when people plateau is too much fat. Um, other people think when people plateau, there's a very uh, typical tendency in doing these diets to say, okay, I buy the idea that the carbohydrates are the problem. I get that. Mm-hmm. But I can't put behind this idea that fat's the problem, so I'm going to compromise. So now I'm going to eat, I'm going to get rid of the starches, the potatoes and the grains and the starches and the sugars, but I'm going to eat green leafy vegetables with a skinless chicken breast. Mm, And now I'm getting most of my non-carb calories from protein, and as you pointed out, protein, and this was, I now know all the science, first observed in the 1860s, about 60% of the amino acids from proteins will be converted to glucose and stimulate insulin mm-hmm. secretion. So traditionally, these diets are high-fat diets, not high-protein diets. That's how they were used for diabetes originally. Um, that's the way to minimize insulin secretion. But again, you're balancing sort of homeostatic mechanisms here. So the best I can say is try this, try that, mm-hmm. and learn how to self-experiment. Yeah, it, it's a little agree. bit like different strokes for different folks. And I think uh, right. there's something to be said for biochemical individuality. Some people experience problems, whereas other people breathe through. So all that is encapsulated in this great book, The Case for Keto, Rethinking Weight Control and the Science and Practice of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating. Gary Thompson, thanks very much for joining us. And you're working on a new project? Uh, I am working on a book just on diabetes at the moment Great. Um, and several magazine articles that may or may not see the light of day. Um, I very much look forward to that. And do you, do you have a website? Uh, is there uh, some direction you can point our listeners towards to get information about your books and publications? Web, website is GaryTalbs.com. And as of, uh, yeah, they, we will, oh, I got a, a First chapter of the case for keto is available uh, for free if you want to read that from the website. Um, I tweet at uh, at Gary Tabs, but um, Twitter is the world I try not to engage in if I can avoid it. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's a time suck, and uh, it, you know it's amazing because uh, the diet wars uh, rage on Twitter. And it's almost everything can be controversialized, including, uh, you know, whether to be on a low-carb diet or not. And Twitter certainly exemplifies that in every realm. So Taubes, T-A-U-B-E-S, GaryTaubes.com. 
Thank you, Gary, for joining us and uh, all the best in getting the word out with the book. You've, you certainly have been very, very influential in this uh, movement uh, from its inception. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's uh, really helping a lot of people. I think the tide is turning uh, towards acceptance of uh, this paradigm, for sure. So you've been very tired. Well, thank you, Ron. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. Okay, all the best. Thank you for having me. My great pleasure. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site, it's safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant, and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.